Section 16 of Volume 1, A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Volume 1 of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times by Francois Guizot, translated by Robert Black. Chapter 9 the mayors of the palace the pepins and the change in dynasty part three whilst thus making use at the expense of the church and for political interests of material force charles martel was far from misunderstanding her moral influence and the need he had of her support at the very time when he was incurring her anathemas not content with defending christianity against islamism he aided it against paganism by leading the Christian missionaries in Germany and the northwest of Europe, amongst others St. Willibrod and St. Boniface, the most effectual assistants. In 724 he addressed to all religious and political authorities that could be reached by his influence, not only to the bishops, but to the dukes, counts, their vicars, or palatines, all our agents, our envoys, and our friends the circular letter. Know that the successor of the apostles, our father in Christ, Boniface, bishop, has come unto us, saying, that we ought to take him under our safeguard and protection. We do you to wit that we do so very willingly, wherefore we have thought proper to give him confirmation thereof under our own hand, in order that, with her soever he may go, he may there be in peace and safety in the name of our affection and under our safeguard, in such sort that he may be able everywhere to render, do, and receive justice. And if he come to find himself in any pass or necessity which cannot be determined by law, that he may remain in peace and safety until he be come into our presence, he and all who shall have hope in him or dependence on him that none may dare to be contrary-minded towards him, or do him damage, and that he may rest at all times in tranquillity and safety, under our safeguard and protection. And in order that this may be regarded as certified, we have subscribed these letters with our own hand, and sealed them with our ring. Here were clearly no vague and meaningless words, written to satisfy solicitation, and without a thought of their consequences, they were urgent recommendations and precise injunctions, the most proper for securing success to the protected in the name of the protector. Accordingly, St. Boniface wrote, soon after, from the heart of Germany, Without the patronage of the prince of the Franks, without his order and the fear of his power, I could not guide the people, or defend the priests, diacons, monks, or handmaids of God, or forbid in this country the rights of the pagans, and their sacrilegious worship of idols. At the same time that he protected the Christian missionaries launched into the midst of pagan Germany, Charles Martel showed himself equally ready to protect, but with as much prudence as goodwill, the head of the Christian Church. In 741, Pope Gregory III sent to him two nuncios, the first that ever entered France in such a character, to demand of him succor against the Lombards, the Pope's neighbors, 
who were threatening to besiege Rome. These envoys took Charles Martel so many presents that none had ever seen or heard tell of the like, and amongst them the keys of St. Peter's tomb, with a letter in which the Pope conjured Charles Martel not to attach any credit to the representations or words of Luitbrand, king of the Lombards, and to lend the Roman Church that effectual support, which for some time past she had been vainly expecting from the Franks and their chief. Let them come, we are told, wrote the Pope piteously, this Charles with whom ye have sought refuge, and the armies of the Franks. Let them sustain ye, if they can, and wrest ye from our hands. Charles Martel was in fact on good terms with Luitbrand, who had come to his aid in his expeditions against the Arabs in Provence. He, however, received the Pope's nuncios with lively satisfaction, and the most striking proofs of respect, and he promised them not to make war on the Lombards, but to employ his influence with King Luitbrand to make him cease from threatening Rome. He sent, in his turn, to the Pope two envoys of distinction, Sigebert, abbot of Saint-Denis, and Grimon, abbot of Corby, with instructions to offer him rich presents, and to really exert themselves with the king of the Lombards, to remove the dangers dreaded by the Holy See. He wished to do something in favor of the papacy, to show sincere goodwill, without making his relations with useful allies subordinate to the desires of the Pope. Charles Martel had not time to carry out effectually, with respect to the papacy, this policy of protection, and at the same time of independence. He died at the close of the same year, October twenty-second, 741, at Kersey-sur-Oise, aged fifty-two years, and his last act was the least wise of his life. He had spent it entirely in two great works, the reestablishment throughout the whole of Gaul, of the Franco-Gallo-Roman Empire, and the driving back from the frontiers of this empire, of the Germans in the north and the Arabs in the south. The consequence, as also the condition of this double success, was the victory of Christianity over paganism and Islamism. Charles Martel endangered these results by falling back into the groove of those Merovingian kings whose shadow he had allowed to remain on the throne. He divided between his two legitimate sons, Pepin called the Short, from his small stature, and Carloman, the sole dominion, which he had with so much toil reconstituted and defended. Pepin had Neustria, Burgundy, Provence, and the suzerainty of Aquitaine. Carloman, Austrasia, Thuringia, and Alemannia. They both, at their father's death, took only the title of mayor of the palace, and perhaps of duke. The last but one of the Merovingians, Thierry the Fourth, had died in 737. For four years there had been no king at all. But when the works of men are wise and true, that is, in conformity with the lasting wants of people, and the natural tendency of social effects, they get over even the mistakes of their authors. Immediately after the death of Charles Martel, the consequences of dividing his empire became manifest. In the north, the Saxons, the Bavarians, and the Alemannians renewed their insurrections. In the south, the Arabs of Septimania recovered their hopes of effecting an invasion, and Hunald, Duke of Aquitaine, who had succeeded his father Oides, 
after his death in 735, made a fresh attempt to break away from Frankish sovereignty and win his independence. Charles Martel had left a young son, Grippo, whose legitimacy had been disputed, but who was not slow to set up pretensions and to commence intriguing against his brothers. Everywhere there burst out that reactionary movement which arises against grand and difficult works when the strong hand that undertook them is no longer by to maintain them. But this movement was of short duration and to little purpose. Brought up in the school and in the fear of their father, his two sons, Pepin and Carloman, were inoculated with his ideas and example. They remained united in spite of the division of dominions, and labored together, successfully, to keep down in the north the Saxons and Bavarians, in the south the Arabs and Aquitanians, supplying want of unity by union, and pursuing with one accord the constant aim of Charles Martel, abroad the security and grandeur of the Frankish dominion, at home the cohesion of all its parts, and the efficiency of its government. Events came to the aid of this wise conduct. Five years after the death of Charles Martel, in 746 in fact, Carloman, already weary of the burden of power, and seized with a fit of religious zeal, abdicated his share of sovereignty, left his dominions to his brother Pepin, had himself shorn by the hands of Pope Zachary, and withdrew into Italy to the monastery of Monte Cassino. The preceding year, in 745, Hunald, Duke of Aquitaine, with more patriotic and equally pious views, also abdicated in favor of his son Wafer, whom he thought more capable than himself of winning the independence of Aquitaine, and went and shut himself up in a monastery in the island of Rhee, where was the tomb of his father Oides. In the course of diverse attempts at conspiracy and insurrection, the Frankish prince's young brother, Grippo, was killed in combat whilst crossing the Alps. The furious internal dissensions amongst the Arabs of Spain, and their incessant wars with the Berbers, did not allow them to pursue any great enterprise in Gaul. Thanks to all these circumstances, Pepin found himself, in 747, sole master of the heritage of Clovis, and with the sole charge of pursuing, in state and church, his father's work, which was the unity and grandeur of Christian France. Pepin, less enterprising than his father, but judicious, persevering, and capable of discerning what was at the same time necessary and possible, was well fitted to continue and consolidate what he would, probably, never have begun and created. Like his father, he, on arriving at power, showed pretensions to moderation, or, it might be said, modesty. He did not take the title of king, and in concert with his brother Carloman, he went to seek, heaven knows in what obscure asylum, a forgotten Merovingian, son of Kilperic II, the last but one of the sluggard kings, and made him king, the last of his line, with the title of Hildric III, himself as well as his brother, taking only the style of mayor of the palace. But at the end of ten years, and when he saw himself alone at the head of the Frankish dominion, Pepin considered the moment arrived for putting an end to this fiction. In 751 he sent to Pope Zachary at Rome 
Borchardt, Bishop of Würzburg, and Fuldrad, Abbot of Saint-Denis, to consult the pontiff, says Eginhard, on the subject of the kings then existing among the Franks, and who bore only the name of king, without enjoying a title of royal authority. The Pope, whom St. Boniface, the great missionary of Germany, had prepared for the question, answered that it was better to give the title of king to him who exercised the sovereign power, and next year, in March 752, in the presence and with the assent of the General Assembly of Lloyds and bishops gathered together at Soissons, Pepin was proclaimed king of the Franks, and received from the hand of St. Boniface the sacred anointment. They cut off the hair of the last Merovingian phantom, Hildric III, and put him away in the monastery of St. Sithiu at St. Omer. Two years later, July 28, 754, Pope Stephen II, having come to France to claim Pepin's support against the Lombards, after receiving from him assurance of it, anointed him afresh with the holy oil in the church of Saint-Denis to do honor in his person to the dignity of royalty, and conferred the same honor on the king's two sons, Charles and Carloman. The new Gallo-Frankish kingship and the papacy, in the name of their common faith and common interests, thus contracted an intimate alliance. The young Charles was hereafter to become Charlemagne. The same year Boniface, whom six years before Pope Zachary had made Archbishop of Mayence, gave up one day the episcopal dignity to his disciple Lulus, charging him to carry on the different works himself had commenced amongst the churches of Germany, and to uphold the faith of the people. As for me, he added, I will put myself on my road, for the time of my passing away approaches. I have launched for this departure, and none can turn me from it. Wherefore, my son, get all things ready, and place in the chest with my books the winding sheet to wrap up my old body. And so he departed with some of his priests and servants to go and evangelize the Frisons, the majority of whom were still pagans and barbarians. He pitched his tent on their territory, and was arranging to celebrate there the Lord's Supper, when a band of natives came down and rushed upon the archbishop's retinue. The servitors surrounded him to defend him and themselves, and a battle began. Hold, hold, my children, cried the archbishop. Scripture biddeth us return good for evil. This is the day I have long desired, and the hour of our deliverance is at hand. Be strong in the Lord, hope in him, and he will save your souls. The barbarians slew the holy man and the majority of his company. A little while after, the Christians of the neighborhood came in arms and recovered the body of St. Boniface. Near him was a book, which was stained with blood, and seemed to have dropped from his hands. It contained several works of the fathers, and amongst others a writing of St. Ambrose on the blessing of death. The death of the pious missionary was as powerful as his preaching in converting Friesland. It was a mode of conquest worthy of the Christian faith, and one of which the history of Christianity had already proved the effectiveness. St. Boniface did not confine himself to the evangelization of the pagans. He labored ardently in the Christian Gallo-Frankish church to reform the manners and ecclesiastical discipline, and to assure, whilst justifying, 
the moral influence of the clergy by example as well as precept. The consuls, which had almost fallen into desuetude in Gaul, became once more frequent and active there. From 742 to 753, there may be counted seven, presided over by St. Boniface, which exercised within the church a salutary action. King Pepin, recognizing the services which the Archbishop of Mayence had rendered him, seconded his reformatory efforts at one time by giving the support of his royal authority to the canons of the consuls, held often simultaneously with an almost confounded with the like assemblies of the Franks. At another, by doing justice to the protests of the churches against the violence and spoliation to which they were subjected. There was an important point, says M. Fauriel, in respect of which the position of Charles Martel's sons turned out to be pretty nearly the same as that of their father. It was touching the necessity of assigning to warriors a portion of the ecclesiastical revenues. But they, being more religious perhaps than Charles Martel, or more impressed with the importance of humoring the priestly power, were more vexed and more anxious about the necessity under which they found themselves of continuing to despoil the churches, and of persisting in a system which was putting the finishing stroke to the ruin of all ecclesiastical discipline. They were more eager to mitigate the evil and to offer the church compensation for their share in this evil to which it was not in their power to put a stop. Accordingly, at the March Parade held at Leptinis in 743, it was decided, in reference to ecclesiastical lands applied to the military service, first, that the churches having the ownership of those lands should share the revenue with the lay holder, second, that on the death of a warrior in enjoyment of an ecclesiastical benefice, the benefice should revert to the church. Third, that every benefice by deprivation whereof any church would be reduced to poverty should be at once restored to her. That this capitular was carried out, or even capable of being carried out, is very doubtful, but the less Carloman and Pepin succeeded in repairing the material losses incurred by the church since the accession of the Carlovingians, the more zealous they were in promoting the growth of her moral power and the restoration of her discipline. That was the time at which there began to be seen the spectacle of the national assemblies of the Franks, the gatherings of the March parades, transformed into ecclesiastical synods, under the presidency of the titular legate of the Roman pontiff, and dictating, by the mouth of the political authority, regulations and laws, with the direct and formal aim of restoring divine worship and ecclesiastical discipline, and of assuring the spiritual welfare of the people. Pepin, after he had been proclaimed king, and had settled matters with the church, as well as the warlike questions remaining for him to solve permitted, directed all his efforts towards the two countries which, after his father's example, he longed to reunite to the Gallo-Frankish monarchy, that is, Septimania, still occupied by the Arabs, and Aquitaine, the independence of which was stoutly and ably defended by Duke Oides grandson, Duke Wifrey. The conquest of Septimania was rather tedious than difficult. The Franks, 
after having victoriously scored the open country of the district, kept invested during three years its capital, Narbonne, where the Arabs of Spain, much weakened by their dissensions, vainly tried to throw in reinforcements. Besides the Mussulman Arabs, the population of the town numbered many Christian Goths, who were tired of suffering for the defense of their oppressors, and who entered into secret negotiations with the chiefs of Pepin's army, the end of which was that they opened the gates of the town. In 759, then, after forty years of Arab rule, Narbonne passed definitely under that of the Franks, who guaranteed to the inhabitants free enjoyment of their Gothic or Roman law and of their local institutions. It even appears that in the province of Spain, bordering on Septimania, an Arab chief called Soliman, who was in command at Girona and Barcelona, between the Ebro and the Pyrenees, submitted to Pepin, himself and the country, under him. This was an important event, indeed, in the reign of Pepin, for here was the point at which Islamism, but lately aggressive and victorious in southern Europe, began to feel definitely beaten and to recoil before Christianity. The conquest of Aquitaine and Vasconia was much more keenly disputed and for a much longer time uncertain. Duke Wifrey was as able in negotiation as in war. At one time he seemed to accept the pacific overtures of Pepin, or perhaps himself made similar, without bringing about any result. At another he went to seek and found, even in Germany, allies who caused Pepin much embarrassment and peril. The population of Aquitaine hated the Franks, and the war, which for their duke was a question of independent sovereignty, was for themselves a question of passionate national feeling. Pepin, who was naturally more humane and even more generous, it may be said, in war than his predecessors had usually been, was nevertheless induced, in his struggle against the Duke of Aquitaine, to ravage without mercy the countries he scored, and to treat the vanquished with great harshness. It was only after nine years' war, and seven campaigns full of vicissitudes, that he succeeded, not in conquering his enemy in a decisive battle, but in gaining over some servants who betrayed their master. In the month of July, 759, Duke Wifrey was slain by his own folk, by the king's advice, says Fredegar, and the conquest of all southern Gaul carried the extent and power of the Gallo-Frankish monarchy farther and higher than it had ever yet been, even under Clovis. In 753, Pepin had made an expedition against the Britons of Armorica, had taken Vannes, and subjugated, at certain chronicles, the whole of Brittany. In point of fact, Brittany was no more subjugated by Pepin than by his predecessors. All that can be said is that the Franks resumed, under him, an aggressive attitude towards the Britons, as if to vindicate a right of sovereignty. Exactly at this epoch, Pepin was engaging in a matter which did not allow him to scatter his forces hither and thither. It has been stated already that in 741 Pope Gregory III had asked aid of the Franks against the Lombards, who were threatening Rome, and that, whilst fully entertaining the Pope's wishes, Charles Martel had been in no hurry to interfere by deed in the quarrel. Twelve years later, in 753, 
Pope Stephen, in his turn threatened by Astolphus, king of the Lombards, after vain attempts to obtain guarantees of peace, repaired to Paris and renewed to Pepin the entreaties used by Zachary. It was difficult for Pepin to turn a deaf ear. It was Zachary who had declared that he ought to be made king. Stephen showed readiness to anoint him a second time, himself and his sons. And it was the eldest of these sons, Charles, scarcely twelve years old, whom Pepin, on learning the near arrival of the Pope, had sent to meet him and give brilliancy to his reception. Stephen passed the winter at Saint-Denis, and gained the favor of the people as well as that of the king. Astolphus peremptorily refused to listen to the remonstrances of Pepin, who called upon him to evacuate the towns in the exarchate of Ravenna, and to leave the Pope unmolested in the environs of Rome, as well as in Rome itself. At the March Parade, held at Brain in the spring of 754, the Franks approved of the war against the Lombards, and at the end of the summer, Pepin and his army descended into Italy by Mount Senis, the Lombards trying in vain to stop them as they debouched into the valley of Susa. Astolphus beaten, and before long shut up in Pavia, promised all that was demanded of him, and Pepin and his warriors, laden with booty, returned to France, leaving at Rome the Pope, who conjured them to remain a while in Italy, for to a certainty, he said, King Astolphus would not keep his promises. The Pope was right. So soon as the Franks had gone, the king of the Lombards continued occupying the places in the exarchate and molesting the neighborhood of Rome. The Pope, in despair and doubtful of his auxiliary's return, conceived the idea of sending to the king, the chiefs and the people of the Franks, a letter written, he said, by Peter, apostle of Jesus Christ, son of the living God, to announce to them that, if they came in haste, he would aid them as if he were alive according to the flesh amongst them, that they would conquer all their enemies, and make themselves sure of eternal life. The plan was perfectly successful. The Franks once more crossed the Alps with enthusiasm, once more succeeded in beating the Lombards, and once more shut up in Pavia King Astolphus, who was eager to purchase peace at any price. He obtained it on two principal conditions. First, that he would not again make a hostile attack on Roman territory, or wage war against the Pope or people of Rome. Second, that he would henceforth recognize the sovereignty of the Franks, pay them tribute, and cede forthwith to Pepin the towns and all the lands belonging to the jurisdiction of the Roman Empire, which were at that time occupied by the Lombards. By virtue of these conditions, Ravenna, Rimini, Pesaro, that is to say the Romagna, the Duchy of Arbino, and a portion of the marshes of Ancona, were at once given up to Pepin, who, regarding them as his own direct conquest, the fruit of victory, disposed of them forthwith, in favor of the popes, by that famous deed of gift, which comprehended pretty nearly what has since formed the Roman states and which founded the temporal independence of the papacy, the guarantee of its independence in the exercise of the spiritual power. At the head of the Franks, as mayor of the palace from 741, and as king from 752, Pepin had completed in France, and extended in Italy the work 
which his father Charles Martel had begun and carried on, from 714 to 741, in state and church. He left France reunited in one, and placed at the head of Christian Europe. He died at the monastery of Saint-Denis, September 18, 768, leaving his kingdom and his dynasty thus ready to the hands of his son, whom history has dubbed Charlemagne. End of chapter 9